Let us pray. Gracious God, as we gather around your word, we ask that your spirit might be our teacher. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, which can be found in both Testaments, and ask that you would uh, not only teach us, but direct our hearts to be inclined towards a greater love of you and a greater desire to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not without reason that the book of Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Uh, you might have heard that before. One of the ways in which I think coincidentally, but who's to say, we see a correspondence between Isaiah and the whole gospel witness is that there are 39 chapters in the Old Testament and there are 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah. And from 49 to 66 or from 40 to 66, those 22 books, those are the same number of books that one finds in the New Testament. Now that's kind of a coincidence, I think, because the chapters were assigned during the medieval period. But it is no coincidence that the book of Isaiah has also been called the fifth gospel. Over the past three weeks, we have been witnessing ways in which Jesus has been pointed to in the Old Testament. We began a few weeks ago by looking at Isaiah chapter 40, which was a general prediction of the pronouncement that God was going to come and bring a messenger who would bring comfort to his people. He would bring them home from exile. He would bring people who were feeling alienated from God back home to where they felt at home and where they were able to worship God on home turf right there in their renewed church. And then last week, as I intimated in our children's talk, we turned to Isaiah chapter 7, where we saw the story of the prophecy of the birth of the virgin child. And we noticed that it had two meanings, an original meaning that pertained to someone who lived in the days of Isaiah. In other words, this was a prophecy given to a person who was a virgin at the time of the prophecy. Uh, a king's child, I believe, was going to be conceived a young woman of marriageable age was going to marry, and that child was going to be a sign figure. But of course, in another sense, and in a more full sense, and in one sense in which the book of Isaiah itself welcomes, as we'll see today, that child uh, wanted out of the confines of that first birth. And that virginal announcement was intimating something supernatural. And we see that more and more clearly as we move from Isaiah chapter 7 to Isaiah chapter 11, which we'll look at today. So last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, and today we are looking at Isaiah chapter 9 and 11. And there should be a one-page handout uh, that is there, as well as um, the rest of the text. And I think I might have misplaced my one-page handout, and if, if you've got an extra, thanks, Logan. That would be helpful. Thank you. So I have basically summarized what we were talking about in the introductory paragraph. Today we explore the wonders of that ancient promise of king and kingdom, fulfilled in the humble coming of Jesus and his kingdom, and to be dramatically manifest yet in his glorious second coming. We noticed throughout the past few weeks as well that there are two themes that pervade not only the book of Isaiah, but indeed the whole Bible. God's righteous judgment of sin results in agonizing removal from God's presence. We sin. We blow it. God cannot stand our sin because of his holiness. He punishes us in his righteousness, and we find ourselves, like Adam and Eve in the garden, removed from God's presence because of our sin. 
That's the backdrop for each of the episodes that we've been looking at in Isaiah and that we will see today. And that is the backdrop for the second theme, which is this, God's gracious payment for sin results in a joyous, comforting return to God, what may be called a homecoming. So today we come to look at those passages, as I illustrated in our children's talk, where it becomes more and more clear that the child of promise is one who is the Messiah. Uh, and this Messiah is a person of astounding character, of supernatural nature, and who matches uh, to a T uh, that figure of Jesus. So today we have a bit of a task before us. I'm going to move through it fairly quickly because our time is short, but I wanted to do justice to these Isaiah passages in chapters 7 to 11. So we're going to look at them under three headings. First of all, looking back. The theme of uh, darkness, which forms the backdrop to this messianic revelation. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, but there will no more be gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time, God showed contempt towards the land of Zebulun and toward the land of Naphtali. Whereas now in the later time, he's made honorable the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. My friends, the point in light of the preceding context is this, that God had judged the people for their sin and they were in darkness. A foreign nation, Assyria, had come and had taken over the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, the region of Galilee. And because Assyria was the first to be, because northern Israel was the first to be conquered by Assyria, Isaiah is prophesying here that it's northern Israel that is going to be the first to be liberated from captivity. In the preceding context, there's also an ominous tone of Israel's involvement in idolatry. When the Lord shut up his mouth in order to judge them because of their sin, they began to seek um, palm readers and uh, spiritists and witches and warlocks looking for any kind of a message from God. And so in many ways, we see the same kind of darkness then that we see today. People wandering around trying to find meaning in life and looking everywhere in some ways, but where they can possibly find it. And that is in scripture. And that is the revelation of God in the Bible. So that's the backdrop is that God is promising as he did in Isaiah chapter 40 that we looked at a few weeks ago that that period of darkness is over and there's going to be a new light that shines. So looking back, Isaiah 9, 1 to 5, light emerges from the theme one style trouble of spiritual and national alienation. And we begin to see as the backdrop against that light in verse 2, as for the people who are walking in the darkness, they have seen a great light. As for those beginning to dwell in the land of death's shadow, or as for those dwelling in the land of death's shadow, a light has shone upon them. Friends, the gospel is light. The good news of Jesus is good news. But you notice that the good news of Jesus and the good news of this light can only be understood against the backdrop of sin and judgment. And those words don't sit very well in our culture, do they? We're uh, used to hearing good news in the form of this. The good news is that there is no bad news. You're all right, your lifestyle is okay with you, my lifestyle is okay with me, we're all um, not so great, but basically we're good people, and life is good, get on with it. 
The Bible could not disagree more. The Bible says from the very beginning that we are um, corrupt. We have sinned against God, and that sin results in judgment. So Christians begin with bad news. The gospel begins with bad news. Why else would God have had Jesus die on the cross unless there was something terrible to be atoned for? If God could have taken sin lightly and overlooked it, surely he would not have allowed his own son to be tortured on a cross for the sins of you and the sins of me. So it's against the backdrop of darkness. And if you really look into your own life, you don't have to look very far. It may be your past life before you were a Christian. It may be aspects of your present life as you continue as a Christian. There is a darkness there that God wants to bring light into, and so he does. These people are prophesied and told that they will see a great light, that a light has shone upon them. And secondly, we see in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have magnified its joy. There's not only light, but there's growth. There's development. There's a healthy kind of a sense that we're growing and that we're being a part of something that is taking on a greater measure of life. And that's, of course, the news of the church. Let me just observe in passing, there's a bit of a problem with verb tenses here. Um, I've been speaking in the future, but Isaiah has been speaking in the past. You notice that? For the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is what's called in prophecy the prophetic perfect. Perfect, in linguistic terms, refers to something that is in the past. And the Hebrew prophets are using that tense as a way of saying this. It's in the future, but friends, it is as good as done. It's the prophetic past tense. This is something in the future, but it can be spoken of as though it was in the past, because when God proclaims it, it's as good as done. And so here is a prophecy of the coming of light in the midst of darkness, the coming of growth in the midst of restraint, and then the coming of joy, we read in verse 3b. They rejoice before you as two favorite occasions, the joy at the harvest and when they rejoice in dividing the booty, when they have conquered an enemy and when they're able to divide the spoils. The good news continues in verses 4 and 5. It comes by way of the announcement of the end of war. There isn't much that can be more relevant nowadays than cries for the end of war. We've been hearing it in virtually every city across our land, and rightly so. A call for a ceasefire in Gaza. A call for um, Hamas to stop its violence, for Israel to stop um, indiscriminate bombing, uh, for hostages uh, to be released, for relief to be brought. The agony of war, which we may have thought was far away before 2002, has come knocking on our door, and it's on our streets, it's in the Middle East, and it's even in Europe. God is predicting that the coming of the new age, of which Jesus is a part, is a time when war will become a thing of the past. And it's a miraculous thing. It's as miraculous as what happened on the day of Midian. This refers to a time in the book of Judges when Gideon, you remember, he was asked to take on a formidable foe, and God reduced the numbers of people that were to be involved in that war so that when, Midian, when Gideon won that war against the Midianites, there'd be no question that this was a supernatural military victory. And so God is proclaiming the same thing in the case of Israel and the end of the Assyrian overlordship. 
Every warrior's boot stomped in tumult. Every garment rolled in blood. We'll be for burning, devoured by fire. So that's the backdrop to the good news, category number one. There's darkness in our world. There's darkness in our souls. There's darkness in our life that God wants to break into and bring joy and light and hope and peace. And he promises it to be so. And as we continue to chapters two, or parts two and three, we'll see how that is fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, we begin there. We've been looking back, verses chapter nine, verses one to five. And now we are looking at in verses chapter nine, verses six to seven, and in chapter 11, verses one to five. So we begin at the bottom of page one with Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. We are now looking at a child, the king, the Messiah. This is the beginning of theme two, where God's gracious payment for sin results in a joyous, comforting return to God. And God tells us in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene, that he's going to allow a baby to be born. And this baby is going to be a son of David, and he's going to be a king like no other. And so the prophetic purpose, the prophetic perfect continues. A child is born to us. It's such a sure thing that we can speak of something in the future as though it's in the past. A son is given to us. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name will be called. And we come to four titles that we're just going to dwell on for a minute because they are so wonderful. The first is a wonder of a counselor, wonderful counselor. Uh, the Messiah got it wrong in distinguishing these as two groups, um, wonderful counselor, but no, it's a wonderful counselor, a wonder of a counselor. And you can look in the notes to find out more, but let me just say this quickly because um, it's so important. It, this is a supernatural, miraculous, completely out of the ordinary advisor, a decision maker, a king who is going to have the smarts and the supernatural skill in order to give advice on how things are. For those of you who are walking day by day in your fellowship with Jesus, that is the nature of your counsel. But he's not only your personal Lord, he's in charge of a kingdom. And he is a miraculous, supernatural advisor, decision maker on behalf of the world. This is a baby we're talking about, remember? Or is it? A supernatural giver advice. The second category is mighty God. You can imagine that there are some people who try to soften that language, but it can hardly be softened. The word God is there, followed by the word warrior-like, champion. This is a wonder of a counselor, a mighty God. We're talking about a baby here. And of course, Christians rightly believe that this is none other than the baby Jesus, the one born in a stable in Bethlehem that we will celebrate soon is a wonder of a counselor, a mighty God. He is the eternal father. This is a term that isn't very often used of kings at all. But it talks about the fatherhood of God and the wisdom of a human father. And it's the kind of a father that all of us wish we had, unfortunately didn't always have, who's there all the time, who's wanting our best interests. He's not some faraway governor of a realm, although he is. He's your father, your loving father, your interested father and mine. And he's also the prince of peace. 
He's a royal son whose character is to be one who is filled with peace. The Romans were expecting a warrior to come in that Jewish Messiah. The Jews were expecting the very same thing and both by and large overlooked the Prince of Peace who said, my kingdom is not of this world. And who, as he died on the cross, said such things as, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My peace I bring unto you, not like that of the world. And he will sit upon the throne of his David, uh, the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to establish it and sustain it in justice and righteousness now and forever. Before we go to the second half of looking at, which comes in Isaiah chapter 11, I just want us to notice that part that we read on page two together. Uh, at the end of verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We saw this when we looked at Isaiah 40. This was not some kind of a hope. It wasn't some sort of God saying, well, if I get around to it, I might do this. No, God's ardor, the ardor of the God of the Lord of armies has determined by his character and by his commitment to us as his people that he will do this. And so, of course, he did when Jesus came. And so he shall do more fully when Jesus returns uh, to come again, to settle scores and to bring peace as well as judgment. So let's look at the second part then of looking at chapter 11 verses one to five. And here we get a different description. It's no less glorious, no less messianic, no less supernatural, but it focuses on a shoot that emerges from the stump of Jesse, a twig that will shoot from its roots. Picture the kind of dead stump that some of you know at Crimson Tees, where we used to meet. It's long dead. It has no life in it. But lo and behold, there's emerging from that dead stump, a branch, a shoot. And it calls it the stump of Jesse. Not the stump of David, but the stump of Jesse. Because you see, Jesse was at the beginning of the dynasty. And if you had said stump of David, you would have thought of all of those pompous Davidic kings like Ahaz, who were proudful uh, and who were not relying upon God in the way that they should. So we go right back to Jesse, the peasant, the humble man who is at the beginning of the dynasty, the father of David. And that sets the tone for the kind of savior that we're going to meet as we read further in Isaiah chapter 11. And it's a description of Jesus. It really is by correspondence. And as you read these verses about the king who comes uh, you cannot help but think of time and again of the character of Jesus being demonstrated. It continues in verse 2 by saying, the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. This is a man who is endowed with the spirit of God, who people recognize as one having authority and wisdom and understanding. It's a spirit of advice and strength, and it is a spirit of the knowledge and fear of Yahweh. Namely, it is the perfect, sinless Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ that we read about in the Gospels. Take a close look at verse 3, because there's something here that I think will surprise you and that I had never noticed before, and it's one of the advantages of taking Hebrew when you uh, study theology. It says in verse 3, he will send out the fear of, of Yahweh. He will send out the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor discern by what his ears hear. Now, those things are good, right? That's what a judge wants to do. But we can all be foiled because people put things in front of our eyes. They put things in front of our ears in order to kind of sway. 
But this Messiah has an instinct. He's got a sixth sense that's rooted in his reverence for God that allows him to cut to the chase and see the difference between truth and falsehood. We see that time again in the Gospels, don't we? When they tried to trick Jesus by bringing a woman who had been caught in adultery, they wanted Jesus to make the right denouncement. You know, you see the case, you've heard the situation, go ahead, let the woman be stoned. Jesus sees right through it. And he has a supernatural ability to make determinations. He can read people's minds. He can read your mind and mine. He knows our motives. And this is what makes him such a great king. See, in the ancient Near East, a king, as in ancient Israel, was supposed to be the equalizer, uh, the one who would protect the rights of orphans and widows, the one who would stand up for uh, people who were marginalized, the one who would um, bring justice to people who had no other recourse. And at last, we're being told that there's going to be a son of David who does this very thing. He will send out the fear of Yahweh. He'll not judge by what his eyes see, nor discern by what his ears hear. And thus he will judge the poor with equity and decide what is right for the lowly and the meek of the earth. The kind of person who might give beatitudes um, about, you know, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and so on. But it also says that he's going to be powerful enough to make things right. You can't have a just society without a military and without a police. Maybe you can, but we haven't succeeded at not having that so far. And so in the case of God, he's powerful enough to be able to quash wickedness. And yet righteousness will be a belt around his loins and faithfulness will be the belt around his waist. A wonderful picture here written centuries before Jesus of a Messiah who was to come. Let me ask you a question. Can you think of anyone who's even come remotely close to fulfilling this category other than Jesus? Uh, I mean, there were, there were Jewish would-be messiahs that appeared to have a little bit of uh, flair. Some of them were great um, military leaders, uh, Bar Kokhba and others, but none were so divinely empowered. None had the kind of wisdom and the skill and the supernatural ability and the compassion and the sense of justice and the sense of wisdom that's evident in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here Isaiah, centuries before it happens, tells us it's coming. Thirdly and finally, we've been looking back, noticing a background of darkness. We've been looking at, seeing the character of the Messiah. And now we look forward to see something that we don't often remember. We look forward to a kingdom which brings theme to style global peace and security. All of a sudden, it gets ecological. All of a sudden, it gets biological. All of a sudden, it brings in the animal kingdom. When God's kingdom comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion shall feed together, a little boy shall herd them, a cow and a bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion like the ox shall eat stray, a nursing child shall play near the hole of the cobra. A weaned child shall extend its hand over the viper's den. They shall do no harm, nor shall they destroy throughout my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the earth. My friends, there's a glorious picture here given on Isaiah that is picked up on in the person of Jesus Christ and his proclamation of the kingdom that says one day all things shall be well. Whatever we instinctively know is wrong is going to be made right. 
And the place where it all began is what we celebrate on Christmas morning. When that child was born, that son was given, and the government was placed upon his shoulders, and he has been reigning at the right hand of the Father ever since then. My Jewish friends say, Glenn, if Jesus were the Messiah, the world would be a whole lot different. The kind of Messiah that we're looking for would have brought a world very much like this. Well, I think it's helpful to remember that we have no better candidate than Jesus. There's no one who's even come closer. And that Jesus understood his role to be two-part. First, to come in mercy and to die for our sins, and then to come to judge. And so if we're looking at a world which continues to be in ruination, we have to admit that, and we have to say, there's peace in my heart, there's peace in places in the world, God is on the throne, but it's not done yet. What do we do? Put yourself in acts. Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom in its fullness? When are we going to see the lamb lie down uh, with the wolf and so on? Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1. The time is not for you and me fully to know. It's going to happen. But I want to send you out as witnesses to bear witness to the truth of my good news. And that's your job. And that's my job, is to proclaim that good news, knowing that one day, in the end, all shall be made right. We haven't been given an answer that's definitive, although we've been promised it will take place. But we've been given a job to do. And that's to share the good news about this child who is the answer to all of life's problems. And to know and to trust that one day there will be peace and security in our world in a way that our world is currently longing for, as it has rarely done in many, many years. Amen.